Uh, let me begin our time together in God's Word this morning just by stating something that I think is perfectly obvious. Uh, I think most of us, probably all of us, live our entire lives actively inv- avoiding any scenario where we will be desperate. Isn't that true? Uh, the fearful specter of someday being desperate hangs over a lot of the decisions we make. Uh, this time of year, as you're driving around Aristic County, even now people are loading up their sheds with wood for the winter. That is a, an attempt to someday not be desperate. That's what that is. Whether it's our parenting's Parenting or maintaining our homes and cars, or looking after our health or our finances, or any number of other things, we hope against hope that by making the right decision in time, we will avoid coming to a hopeless sense that a situation is so bad that it's just impossible to deal with. Desperate. Desperation comes in a lot of forms, and we call it by a lot of names. Some have called it poverty. Sometimes it is called cancer. At other times, and to other people, it goes by the name of loneliness, or debt, or troubled marriage, or childlessness. Desperation is sometimes called bad teeth. Leaky roofs, blown transmission, and very often wayward child. Sometimes desperation presents as a sharp, urgent pain demanding immediate action. And at other times, it is a persistent ache that endures over the years and is in the background of all that you do. Invisible to those around you, but more likely not invisible, but just kind of accepted as part of the emotional landscape. If you know that person well, you'd probably notice more the absence of their air of desperation than its presence if it has persisted for a long time. However, with desperation in our mind, because I like to start on a light, upbeat note in these messages... (laughs) With that in mind, just think of those famous stories from the Bible that many of us were taught as children growing up. If you grew up in the church, uh, not all of us did, and that's fine. I don't mean to exclude anybody by saying it that way. But if you grew up as a child around Bible stories, I'm willing to bet that you know the story of the paralytic man who was lowered through the roof by his friends in order to get, get, get to Jesus. Desperation. <laughs> I'm willing to bet you know the story of the man who was a cripple for 38 years and who sat by the pool of Bethesda hoping against hope that somehow he could be the first to touch the water. And Jesus came along and healed him. I'm sure you know that story of a desperate man. We could go on and on and on. From Genesis to Revelation, the book that we love and study and aim our lives at is chock-a-block full of the tales of desperate people. What do all such accounts that we find in our Bibles have in common? Well, as I just pointed out, each is a story about desperate people but they are also helpfully informative about the fact that desperation is actually used as a means of grace by which some people have been drawn to Jesus. In each of these stories, desperation, surprisingly, paradoxically, is the front door to blessing and a deepening faith, and it is what drove these people to go seek Jesus. We fall in love with this world so easily. I mean, we are just always tipping towards infatuation with this world. And one of God's great purposes in seasons of desperation is to pull back the curtain and reveal all of this for what it is. 
And it causes us to turn to the one hope of deliverance from this broken place, these broken bodies, these broken relationships, broken dreams, futures cut short, all of it. Where do we go when we're desperate? The Bible speaks to that. I'm willing to bet that for the paralytic man in Mark 2, the one who was lowered through the roof, the day that he became paralyzed introduced one of the worst, darkest, and most desperate seasons in that man's life. This is in a day where there was no welfare. There was no safety net for his family. He was the means by which they were provided for. And his paralysis would have brought, ushered in a desperate crisis, not just for him, but for everyone who depended on him. Dark, desperate for sure. However, after 10,000 years in glory, wouldn't he say that it was one of the greatest things that ever happened to him? I think he would. And he would say that because that was what brought him to Jesus. And were it not for his desperation, his paralysis, he possibly would never have heard those blessed words spoken to him personally by Jesus himself, your sins are forgiven. Wow. Ten, tens of thousands of years, millions of years in glory, extending unbroken into the awesome infinitude of heaven and the trailhead to the narrow way that brought him into that wonderful place of blessing was desperation. It's the entry point. We can also look at this from the other side in order to see that it is true as well. Consider the long list of people in our Bibles who walked away from Jesus rather than sought Him out, and who continued under the curse and whose hearts were hardened in disbelief rather than grown in faith. What did they all have in common? Rather than desperation, Pontius Pilate, secure in his power, felt cynicism and annoyance in the presence of Jesus. The rich young ruler of Luke 18, satisfied and confident in his wealth, felt dismay at the cost of discipleship. The Pharisees, certain of their own righteousness, felt no desperate need for the righteousness of another, a sacrificial lamb. In the gospel, people with desperate hearts are drawn to Jesus, and people who feel a fat-hearted contentedness and self-sufficiency are frankly repulsed by Him. In John 5.40, Jesus said to the crowds of not-so-desperate people, he said, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. <laughs> you people are not desperate. Let me ask you a question, fellow Christian. Are you desperate this morning? Are you desperate? In this story that we are all living in, in these days between the fig leaves of the first Adam and the robes of righteousness that are going to be given to us by the second, there will be desperation of all different sorts and severities. In John 16, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. <laughs> Job said in his book that man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. Between fig leaves and robes of righteousness, there is going to be all kinds of desperation, desperate seasons, desperate needs. You can take it to the bank. Jesus didn't say, in this world, you're probably going to have some trouble, baby. He said, you will have trouble. It's coming. I know that the guiding ethos of most of our lives is to avoid ever being in a desperate position, and I say impossible, impossible. Rather than throwing all of our energy and thoughtfulness at avoiding desperation, because you can't, we need to think deeply about God's purposes in desperation. How do we turn desperation into a good 
can't be avoided. So what do we do with desperation? Consider with me the possibility that desperation is a means of grace. And God's good purposes in desperation is to draw you to himself, to deepen your faith, to grow you in maturity in Christ's likeness, and to demonstrate through you in that season of desperation his awesome power and generous kindness to you, his faithfulness. If you are desperate today, desperate for something, know that possibly 10,000 years from now in glory, you might give thanks to God for that very thing that causes you so much heartache today. As impossible as it sounds, one of the greatest gifts God ever gave that man in Mark 2 was paralysis, desperation. Without it, would he have ever come into the presence of Jesus and the knowledge of grace? Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43, where we find uh, the story of two, two people intertwined. Uh, they're two separate stories. They could each have their own block of Scripture, but God in His wisdom sort of intertwined these two narratives, and they're hard to sort of separate back out. It's the story of Jairus and his daughter and the woman who had the flow of blood for 12 years. I'm going to be reading. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, Mark chapter 5, beginning at verse 21. And when, and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. You can imagine Jairus' relief. Somehow he got Jesus' attention. Jesus has consented to go with him. Time is of the essence. Come on, let's hurry. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and we can all feel Jairus' heart sinking. We were making progress. We were moving. Now he stopped. He turns around and in the crowd and he said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him. And told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion. <coughs> Excuse me. People weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talithi kumi, which means little girl, 
I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Every sentence of that block of scripture is just heavy with desperation. <laughs> just there's an incredible air of desperation that hangs over the whole thing. Hand-wringing anxiety, long-suffering. Uh, both of these crises were 12 years in the making. The girl was 12 years old. The girl had had the flow of blood for 12 years. God was 12 years prior setting things up for this one amazing day in which Jesus would demonstrate this power that would be recorded in the pages of our scripture for all time. The messengers from Jairus' house asked him, why trouble the teacher any further? And I would say how little that messenger knows and understands Jesus. Jesus was not troubled by the throngs of people who needed him, even a fraction of how much he was troubled by those who felt no need for him at all. Jesus said things like, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Don't trouble the master any further. Jesus says, No, how often would I have gathered you under my wings, but you wouldn't have me. Don't, don't speak about not troubling me. He said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. All things are possible for one who believes, he says in Mark 9. Consider how universal his invitations were to human beings. If any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Ask, and it shall be given to you, he said. And this messenger says, don't trouble him anymore. There is no case too desperate to bring to Christ. No disease could baffle him. Even the grave is not an obstacle to his reach and power. And certainly, all of that is on display in these pages of Scripture. They are meant to explicitly teach something about Jesus' heart of compassion and his power to be able to move in the midst of that compassion to address human need and suffering. In Romans eleven thirty five 35 through 36, Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, <coughs> Excuse me. Who to him that he should be repaid? For to him be glory forever. So no. Jairus was not troubling Jesus with his need and desperation. Jesus is troubled by those who feel no need for him. And that not because his pride is injured by your indifference towards him, but because he is saddened by such people who deny themselves a blessing by refusing to come to him in their need. God is always the giver. That is what he loves to be. He can never be improved because he's perfect. He can never be given anything because he, ha he, ho he owns all things. He has no need. He can't be informed of anything because he's all-knowing, and he wants for nothing. And we, <coughs> please forgive me, and we are needy. So God calls us repeatedly throughout Scripture to come to him in our desperation, and to lay our requests before Him because He wants us to recognize Him as gloriously all-sufficient, and He wants to be revealed through us as faithful and generous and caring, and that He gives to His people generously those things that are needed. <coughs> I 
Now think with me for a moment about this uh, woman who comes up behind Jesus and touches the hem of his garment. By the way, both of these figures in this block of Scripture would have approached the idea of going to Jesus publicly with some fear and trepidation. Jairus is described as a ruler of the synagogue, so he's part of the religious authority. Maybe he's probably not a Pharisee, but probably would have been viewed as, a, as in sort of a similar category in that culture at that time, and maybe would have known some of those guys. And so the thought of going to Jesus, this guy who has these very public dust-ups with the leading religious authorities in the society at the time, and he a ruler of the synagogue, there might have been some professional fallout from him seeking out a guy like Jesus in his desperation. The woman with her flow of blood would have been under Jewish law, ceremonially unclean. Thank you, Bill Desjardins. It is water. It is water. He said it's water. It makes me suspicious. Water, okay. Uh, so, so she would have not actually, it would have been, it would have, made, it would have soiled Jesus in a sense for her to touch him. She would have been spreading, that would have been a transgression of the law and transgressive for her to do that. And so for her to just kind of, maybe nobody will even notice, maybe I can just kind of scurry in and do this. They both are filled probably with a sense of anxiety and apprehension even about going to him in this public space with their desperation. But they do. And the healing is affected for the woman. And Jairus, uh, amazingly, in his household, an even greater miracle plays out. I want to focus, though, on the last of our time here on this woman. Uh, One of the things I think that sometimes comes up when we read God's Word and assails our mind is that's all very well and good in the Bible, but that does not happen for me today. does not happen for people today. I read that stuff in the book of Mark, but it is divorced from the reality of anything I've ever experienced in church or the faith tradition. Can we really be trained to expect that? Or isn't this just enjoying a long-ago story that doesn't actually have any practical expression in the way we live out our faith today? And I started by talking about desperation. My conviction is that there are desperate people here in the room today, that desperation is the trailhead that leads us to glory. (laughs) I believe that. And so the real question is, in what way does this inform us about what to do with desperation. Can you sneak up behind Jesus today? Can you reach out and touch his garment today? Can anything be done? Can Jesus still on the scene to do something in the midst of what's making you desperate? Those are the questions that really press in in a practical way on us on a morning like this. We're not a book club. We don't just talk about our favorite book every Sunday. This book is meant to be lived. What are we going to do with a text like this, especially when it's so different from anything else we've ever seen or experienced in living out our faith in Jesus? I want to give you this morning three practical and I believe very real ways that in your desperation, you can seek out to touch Jesus and be helped. And I'm not speaking in a hyperbolic way. I think these are very practical ways that God has given you today. I think if we had kept the garment that Jesus was wearing on that occasion, it would now be in the church of the holy garment somewhere, and there would be throngs down the street. But that would miss the whole point, right? Because we don't worship images, graven images, physical objects. We worship a God who is spirit. He says, worship me in spirit and in truth. Don't line up in a queue backed up to touch a, some garment somewhere in Italy or wherever like that. That's not how this Christianity thing is going to work. And so I'm glad that garment doesn't exist today. I'm glad we don't know where it is um, because we would be tempted to put idolatrous um, notions surrounding that. But here are three ways that you can, in a very real way, 
touch Jesus with your desperation this week. The first thing I would say is this woman in her desperation goes to seek Jesus. Jairus in his desperation goes to seek Jesus. Where do you find Jesus today? Three, three places I'm going to tell you about. The first is seek God in His Word. Now, the physical healing that this woman received was temporary. It was for this life only. But her spiritual healing was given for eternity. Now, some of you are saying, oh, that's a cop-out, Josh. The thing I have need about is a physical thing, and you're starting to talk about how heaven's going to come someday, and that's all pie in the sky, and it doesn't actually help me today. We say, uh, doesn't God heal people physically? Yes, He does sometimes, but we're going to talk about spiritual healing in heaven. And the thought is, but I want both. And that's where you get stuck. That's where we get stuck. The physical healing that she received was temporary. It was for this life only. But the spiritual healing that came to her was given for all eternity. The flow of blood ceased, removing this disgrace that she had of being unclean, healing her. But that too was temporary because in those days before death and resurrection in Christ... She still would have had to be ritual cleansed as an ongoing necessity in her life. That's why the cleansing that she received from Jesus points to something so much greater. The cleansing that comes by being washed in His very own blood. So I think the first place that we can seek Jesus... And I don't know if He plans to change your circumstances or to change you in the midst of your circumstances. I don't know if He plans to work a miracle that changes what's bothering you or to work a miracle by giving you a new view of what's bothering you. I don't know what He's up to. He's wise. I'm not. I don't tell God what to do. But if you go to Him, He will give you what's needed. And the first place to start your search for Jesus is to seek God in His Word and to draw hope-filled encouragement from His promises of a coming day. As we seek Him in His Word with worries about various things, He speaks to us. God is not absent about the speaking to human beings in the midst of their most desperate needs. Uh, sometimes you'll see on TV, you'll often hear it spoofed, that some like uh, two-in-the-morning healing ministry, you know, the type that we all view with dubious where people come up on the stage and they're, they're healed of something or whatever. People often ask, well, why don't they go to the children's cancer ward? Yeah, that's a good question. It's a really good question. But here's the thing. Jesus does not avoid the most desperate issues that face humanity in his word because he is no charlatan. He is not setting things up for a, sh a show, a production, He's addressing the greatest, most deepest needs that we have. When you come to God's Word with worries about a future cut short, He promises eternal life and pleasures at His right hand forevermore. He says, I have a fix for that. When we're wrong, cheated, stolen from, His Word reminds us that we have a better and an abiding possession in Christ. And that there is a treasure laid up where rust, moth, and thief can't destroy or plunder. We come to the Bible with desperate loneliness, and He meets us there to remind us that He will be with us always, even to the end of the age, and that He has given us the church as traveling companions along the way. We bring Him our wrecked bodies, and He promises that we will be given new ones, and that even this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory. We bring Him those who have wronged us, and He reminds us that there is a coming day of justice, and that vengeance belongs to Him, that He's not asleep, that He sees it all. We bring Him our anxiety, and He gives us a peace that passes all understanding. We bring to Him our lack of money, and He reminds us of His words in Matthew 6, that if God feeds the birds and clothes the flowers, He will surely do the same for His own children." 
As we are trained to trust and to cling to Christ, remaining steadfast, we are brought into a more perfect maturity. So begin this week by seeking God in His Word. This woman had the wisdom to go and seek Jesus out. And Jesus is the Word made flesh. If you want to go hang out with Jesus, spend some time in your Bible this week. Excuse me. The second is this. In your desperation, seek Him in prayer. Uh, Prayer is about as central to the meaning of the created universe as we can get. Have you ever heard someone ask the philosophical question, what is the meaning of life? Sometimes you'll hear somebody ask this. Uh, Christians actually have a ready answer for that question, what is the meaning of life? According to such passages as Isaiah 43, 7, we were created, all of life was created for God's glory that who He is might be put on display through us, and that we might live in relationship with Him in a way that reflects our worshipful dependence on Him, that He's excellent and good and faithful. That's the meaning of life, that God would be glorified in His creation. So human beings created in His image should look to God to satisfy all of their wants, needs, and desires so that they would get the joy and He would get the glory. And what do we call this looking to God, the seeking of Him out in our need and our desperate state? Well, we call that prayer. Prayer is this thing we have been given by God to, to confess out loud our need for Him, and in that He is glorified. So prayer is not some small thing, it is not a marginal thing, it's not given as an additional help to the Christian, which we can take up and use if we really, 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 really need it. Prayer, rightly understood, is at the very heart of why God created the universe. We were designed full of need, so that our needs might be perfectly satisfied through our great and excellent shepherd God. And prayer is how we, in our desperation and our need, come to God and get the help, and He gets the glory. I believe this is why Jesus said, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven, and why so often God warns His people against putting their faith in anything other than Him. He is saying, man was created at the first so that my glorious sufficiency might be displayed through your need. So when we take our need and we lay it before anything other than God, when we place our confidence and our hope in anything other than Him, we are denying Him the glory to which He is entitled, and we are denied the joy that comes from living out of our design as worshipers of the Almighty God. We will not find joy if we are resting, we will in faith-filled dependence on Him. We will find joy, only then. And that dependence is most often expressed through the human action of prayer. When you pray, you are saying nothing less that I'm not able, but you are. I don't have what it takes, but you do. I'm not big enough, but you are. You are God, I am a man, and I am desperate, and you are the one who meets the needs of the desperate. This is what prayer is an expression of, a confession of, and in this God is glorified. So seek Him in His Word. I think there's an interactive relationship between God's Word and prayer. I think wherever you find poverty in one, you find poverty in the other. You show somebody whose prayer life is in shambles, I'm willing to bet that their time in God's Word is likewise shambolic, chaotic, disorganized, not happening. You show me one who's consistent in the one and they'll be consistent in the other because the way that conversation with God works, we breathe in God's word, we breathe out prayer. You go and seek him in his word and when you're there with him, you will naturally fall into conversation. Uh, This is why I personally stopped listening to the Bible on tape. I think it's a wonderful thing. I don't think everybody should stop it. Please don't hear me condemn the practice. 
But for a while, I was listening to the Bible in the car as I was driving. The problem with that is that when I started to speak back to God from what I was hearing in His Word, He just kept talking. <laughs> and so the, the, the breathing in the God's Word was happening, but when I would start to breathe back out prayer, the voice on the Bible app or whatever it was just kept talking, and I, I had to stop it so I could start praying and talking. This is the way this works. So you can't talk about the one without the other. And if your prayer life is a mess, go find him in his word and just see how the two will grow in tandem. They must. But there's another one, and this is, uh, and this is where I really believe, guys, that, when I'm ta- that what the Bible does is it tells us to train us to look for a coming day, to believe in the God who demonstrates his power by meeting the needs of his people. But I want to say that God's means... His method, his M.O. is his people. The closest thing you can do to coming up and touching the hem of the garment of Jesus today is to come and be present among his, in the body of Christ. God's people are what you need to be brought into close contact with to have your needs, your desperation in some way addressed. God is so committed to making man his method that our greatest need he accomplished by becoming a man. Isn't that amazing? Jesus became a man. In Judges 6.34, we find the story of Gideon. We're not going to go there and study that story. That's a story for another time. But in Gideon 6.34, we find this really interesting verse. Judges 6.34. I said Gideon 6.34. Judges 6.34. It says, but the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abizrites were called out to follow him. That phrase, the Lord clothed Gideon, is actually not the best rendering of the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, and I think we don't put it this way in in most versions of the Bible because it's a little awkward sounding in English, but what the Hebrew actually says, rather than the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, it says that the spirit wore Gideon like a garment. (laughs) That's fascinating, especially in light of what we're talking about, where this woman came up to touch the hem of Jesus's garment. When we talk about a spirit-filled church, the church is not so much clothed in the spirit as the spirit has clothed himself in you. You will come up to touch the hem of Jesus' garment when you show up in a Bible study, when you seek out Christian counsel, when you speak out loud the thing that's making you desperate to a brother or sister who has proven him or herself faithful over a span of years, somebody who has wisdom, somebody who maybe doesn't have a clue about about how to help you, but will just simply say, I'm a true friend. I love the Lord. I know God's word is where we need to go. Let me help you. (laughs) Most people, uh, you know, and one of the great examples of this, and we studied this several years ago back in 2018, that far back. But most people, you know that story of when Jesus washed the disciples' feet? This is a great example of something that is very present among God's people. Uh, most people would read that story and, and interpret it as a command to humble themselves and sacrificially serve others. And that is certainly a right and true interpretation. In fact, that's the primary meaning of that story. When Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he said, I set an example for you in this, meaning that I want you guys to go and be servants, to be need meters. You see what I'm saying? Jesus, when he was here in physical form, during the years of his earthly ministry, did a lot to alleviate human suffering. But in washing the disciples' feet, he is saying the church is going to be the body of Christ in this fallen world. I'm going to bring you into contact with all kinds of desperate need, and you guys are going to be the ones who are going to wash feet. You're going to be a servant who meets needs. And of course, the primary meaning is challenging us to follow Jesus' example. However, It is equally true, yet less commonly emphasized, that it is also a command to allow others to serve us in our neediness. 
My entire life I've grown up in the church. I was blessed to be born to two wonderful Christian parents, mom and dad. And uh, they raised me among people like you. And my sense of things is this. There are lots of people in the church who need to be confronted again with the idea that they need to be a blessing and a help to others. They need to serve others. They need to use their home and their cars to bless and encourage people who have none. They need to give their friendship and service to lonely people. All of that is true. But in the main, I have always found that Christian communities are marked by an open-handed generosity and a willingness to serve sacrificially. I've never been a part of a church in my life where that wasn't a mark of that church, where I wouldn't have said of those people, these people will do anything to help you if you have a need. It's true of State Road. It's true of other churches I've been a part of. This is not only something that I've personally experienced and benefited from, but as a pastor, I also often am uniquely well-positioned to hear the stories from others of the extraordinary and challenging example that some are setting of their radical commitment to Jesus in the way that they serve others. But let me ask you something, and please don't answer out loud. It's just you in the quiet places of your heart, just you and the Holy Spirit. Which seems like the harder assignment to you? Washing someone's feet or letting someone wash yours? Which is harder, fellow Christian? To show up like a knight in shining armor in the midst of somebody's desperate season or to open your mouth and invite others into yours? Which is harder? Sometimes the strongest servants have the hardest time allowing others to serve them. And those who love, absolutely love meeting the needs of others have the hardest time touching the hem of the body of Christ. (laughs) Opening up, saying, I'm the one with the flow for, for 12 years. I'm the one who has had this desperation as a background element in my emotional landscape for a long time. And folks, that's sin. That is sin. There is a thin line between trying to become like God in character and trying to become like Him in essence. There is a difference between trying to be more like God and trying to become godlike. When we serve others sacrificially, we are imitating the character of our God. But when we act as though we are self-sufficient and have no needs, we present ourselves as being godlike. And we are play-acting at being God's equal. And folks, this betrays a grasping desire for the place of God, not a desire to be like Him. I suppose both pursuits are, in a sense, acts of worship. But the object of worship changes away from God and towards the self when we refuse to confess neediness within a church family like ours here at State Road. It's spiritual embezzlement. It's a misappropriation of glory to say I'm not desperate and I have no need for the body of Christ. Fellow Christian, it is true that you were made by your Creator with certain strengths and gifts, but it is also true that you were designed on purpose with limitations and areas of weakness. Both are from God for your joy. You are gifted in order that you might be a blessing and a help, and you are limited in order that you might be blessed and helped. The church is intended by God as this community where we meet needs according to our strengths and have our needs met according to the strength of others. 
Christians are needy people. All people are needy people, but Christians are people who celebrate their neediness to some extent. We celebrate the fact that we're not godlike. We've died to the idea of being, I can do it all, I'm like a god. That's the ethos of this world. Christians say, I'm a sheep, and I need others to help me. I need a, I need a savior. Christian, your Christian journey begins with a bowing of the knee and a confession that you're not enough. And that powerfully shapes the whole. So Christians are needy people, and this is so because need is the very fuel of worship. If you feel yourself unable to enter into worship, it is because you feel no particular need for God or His people. As Luke 1.53 says, He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty. If we are not honest with one another about the needs in our lives, if we try to be self-sufficient and godlike, we will miss out on the joy of having our needs met within the diverse giftings of the body. And we rob others of the joy of using their gifts and service to us. But of highest concern is the fact that we rob God of His glory because if we don't confess our need, instead of our unified testimony being that of a community in which needs are being met in God through His people, then our testimony is that we are a community of little gods. Self-sufficient do-gooders. Is that what our communities need? No. Again, this is spiritual embezzlement. Peter said to Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if, you, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If you will not allow yourself to be washed by the body of Christ, served, by the body of Christ, you have no part with Jesus. If we insist that we're godlike, self-sufficient, all-sufficient, not desperate, not needy, that is a tantamount to saying to Jesus, you will never wash me. It's a serious problem in the heart of a person that can't confess that. So some people need to be challenged to serve others as Christ did, to be need meters, to stop being so insular and self-focused, not concerned about the needs of others that present around you. Surely that needs to be said and spoken a lot. But others need to be challenged to let others serve them. There is also the joyous necessity of being served. And so I ask again, are you desperate today? Are there health scares? Is there a marriage in crisis? Is there depression, addiction, sin habits, crushing debt, wayward children? Are you anxious about something and you just revisit it over and over and over again throughout the course of your week? Are you lonely? Are you contemplating suicide? What is the need in your life that your mind returns to again and again? And then let me ask you this. Does anyone in your church family know about it? If not, you have not yet snuck up behind Jesus and laid hold of the hem of his garment. And I encourage you to. You are not designed to carry that load alone. It will crush you if you do not share it with your brothers and sisters. So here's my encouragement to you this week if you are desperate. Seek Jesus out in his word. Breathe in his word and then flow back in honest conversation in prayer. Lay your requests before him. Open your heart. Ask him to shape you according to the word that you've read. And then, my goodness, we cannot continue to be a people who present themselves as little gods, free and independent of one another, free of desperate need. But I'll help you if anything ever comes up.
We have to be a people who lean against one another. This is God's design, and God is made visible in the midst of a church family like that in a way that He's not, where we pretend to be God-like. That's putting yourself on display, not Jesus. So I think these are some things we can see in the story this morning uh, about the woman and Jairus. Uh, Let us pray. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, uh, so far in this sermon series in which we have been talking about the ways that you cover us, God, it is a new and an interesting thought that we find in the story of Gideon that you have covered yourself in the church, that you are wearing us like a garment, that we are filled with the Spirit, that we are your means, the church is your plan to flow out as a river of blessings into this dry, parched, needy world. And so, Father, as you draw us into your word this week, as we in desperation come to try and find Jesus in the midst of that throng of words, God, I pray that you would just give desperate people an eye-to-eye, heart-to-heart kind of conversation with you in the middle of your word. God, surprise them with the intimacy of that conversation. Surprise them, Lord, with the supernatural reality of the fact that they are communing with the God who created it all. And God, as you speak to them in your word, God, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, uh, open their mouths to speak in prayer. God, put prayers on our lips in the midst of our desperation that line up with your will. God, we know that prayer doesn't exist to move you. You're already in position. You're perfect. Prayer, in a mysterious way, brings us into agreement with you. And so, God, we ask by your Holy Spirit to put prayers on our lips that help us to look on our present circumstances from your perspective, that express a heart that is confident in you and your promises, and that believes in your power to heal. And Father, I thank you for the means of grace that is the church. I thank you for friends, brothers, and sisters who, though imperfect, are sincere, and that together we are all helping one another stumble our way home to you. So, Father, I pray that we would be a a kind of church family, God, where people are helped, needs are met, but we are also, God, uh, honest about our own needs with one another. So, Father, we ask you to shape us more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus as we all make our way along together, walking in the light of Scripture as an honest but sometimes imperfect reflection of who you are. God, make us more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus, that you might be glorified in us, and we might put on display how excellent and good you are. In Jesus' name, amen.